Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest today is Alyssa May Gold, who is making her Broadway debut in How I Learned to Drive alongside Mary Louise Parker and David Morse. Oh my God, I saw this show the other night and just incredible. Alyssa and the rest of the cast are so amazingly good. The subject matter is heavy, which we do get into in the episode. So a little trigger warning about uh, about sexual abuse. So keep that in mind when you're listening. But this conversation with Alyssa is absolutely incredible. Her father, when she was young, taught her how to play poker. And we were talking about how poker made her become a better actor because she has to learn to bluff and things that, you know, actors do. She actually made it to the World Series of Poker as as a young kid, not a young kid. She was at least legal to gamble, <laughs> at least old enough to gamble there. Uh, and something she said, actually, I wrote this down because it resonated with me, is that if you feel like you're alone, you're actually feeling like everyone else. She said that. I was like, yes, exactly. Incredible. She's just a a great person. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Before we get in, as always, find me online, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I'm on TikTok now at The Theater Podcast. I've got a couple of videos up there. And leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. And now, everybody, we're going to take a short break. And then we'll get into the interview with Alyssa May Gold. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Today's guest is making her Broadway debut in the long-anticipated How I Learned to Drive alongside two of my favorite actors, Mary Louise Parker and David Morse. She has an extensive list of credits on stage and on TV and film and the web, and she started? Starred? I can't read my own typing here. She's starred, written, and directed in her own series called You Made It Worse, which is related to her own theater and production company called Pocket Universe which is dedicated to reconsidering and reimagining classic stories and conventions. Alyssa May Gold, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you so much. Will you come around and introduce me like that everywhere I go? That's that's fantastic. I'm feeling very good about myself. This audition, today's auditionee is making her Broadway debut. Yes. And the reader goes, get the hell out of here. Get out. Oh my God, this is too much. (laughs) Alan, we don't need you again. Get out of here. Okay. Uh... (laughs) There's something that I want to dive into real quick that I think is so unusual and unique for somebody in the theater space is that you got to play in the World Series of Poker in mm-hmm. Vegas. Yes, I did. And I made Tell it to me day this story. three. This is, this is a very 
Uh, it was a long winding road. And basically my dad taught me how to play poker when I was a kid. I was, if you want to know what I was like in middle school, I was like the kid coming into third grade with poker chips, my, my own personal <laughs> set of poker chips and cards. And I taught everyone how to play five card draw and like at lunch, we would play cards. Um, I had a lot of friends. I was very popular. No, I wasn't. It was terrible. And <laughs> then I kind of, it, so it was something I always knew about and I, I really enjoyed um, and we always kind of had a plan that I, we would go to the World Series one day together. And then um, we didn't do it until later than we had planned when I was kind of at a time in my life where theater and and acting and kind of creating just, I didn't have, I was getting very small because, you know, you deal with just so much rejection. You're just being told no all the time. It's And because I started as a kid, that really kind of erodes your sense of self over time. And mm. it's hard to... if you don't know that there's another option, it's very easy to default to rejection that, that your self-worth is based on your career. It's just very easy to let that be true. And so this was in a time in my life where that was very true. And it was really kind of sinking into me. And my, my parents said, I think this is, it's time. And so my dad, it's time to learn poker. It's time to learn poker. And this is, it's poker is the perfect microcosm of the real world because it's it's all about decision making with incomplete information because you have a lot of information and you're gathering a lot of information you have your cards you have the behavior of the people around you you have 52 cards in a deck you have a a structure of how the game will play out you have a certain amount of chips everyone else has a certain amount of chips you have no idea what's going to come out of the deck And that's life. You know what you have. You can see what other people have. You can see their behavior. You know how you're going to behave. And but you have no idea that you know. I don't know. A global pandemic is going to roll in and ruin your Broadway (laughs) debut for two years. You know, like you just can't see these things coming. And so, so compared to chess, for example, which is a game of complete information, there is a right move in chess. It's not as good a test case for life, but poker is is the perfect practice arena for decision-making in real life and also holding your own. So my dad and I would meet once a week and he would develop, he would like set up 10 seats and I would take one of them. He would like set up stacks of chips and, and he taught me no limit hold'em and, and mostly how to bet because that's really like the game is pretty straightforward. You want to make the best hand you can with your cards and the cards in the middle, but the, the strategy of betting and how you, Take what you have, which is also very much like life. What do I have? But what can I convince everyone else that I have? What's the most realistic hand I could represent? Because you don't know wow. what I have. And, there, and that's something that especially as for me as a girl in the world, I was very susceptible to the idea that I don't really know what's going on. You guys, the men at the table know. And poker was a really great way for me to kind of confront why. Why would you know more than I do? Why would you know what I have better than I know what I have? And why couldn't I convince you I have something else? And as we practiced, I started to kind of come into that more. And then we started going to tournaments. And I played a couple of tournaments at Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun as like, you know, to warm up because you didn't just like roll into the World Series. And I did really well because what I started to, and again, it was so much of it was about, um, the performance of it because my first tournament I was like very chatty I had a really good time I talked to everybody and I lost very quickly and <laughs> the next night I was like what am I how do I how do I not give myself away how do I take away the parts of me that are so uh the parts of me that love sharing and and allow myself to to not be polite and to not be friendly and that it's a game and I want to win it. And how do I let myself do that? And so I dressed like a teenage girl at a sleepover. I wore like leggings and this oversized t-shirt that says no one cares. And I put on sunglasses and I didn't talk to anybody. And these guys had no idea what to do with me. They're like, I I was going to think that you, you probably come in and get way underestimated because, uh, because like the assumption is like, this is a man's game Mm -hmm. with, Big dudes with sunglasses and hats. Mm-hmm. And so what scares them? Their teenage daughter who doesn't talk to them anymore. Ooh. And so that's what I embodied. And they were like, oh, actually, that feels dangerous. That feels dangerous to us. And so they left me alone for the most part. And I and what it let me do was sit in like, not trying to prove myself, but to sit in being underestimated and sit in like, yeah, you don't know what I have. 
and you'd think I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know that I have you beat right now. And, and it really like, it, it worked and it helped me kind of hold my own when I came back to the city after all of this and I, like went back to my regular life. I was like, oh, this all applies. That if people underestimate me, that's my greatest power. And I don't, because I, 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 I can believe that I know what I'm doing. And You're going to come in and, and un, uh, under promise and over deliver every single time. Every single time. That's incredible. I, I love I love how much that can apply to pretty much every scenario in life, yes. right? So you go in and especially in the in your auditions, right? People don't know what to expect. They come in. I mean, people make snap judgments every time based on what you're wearing. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yes, what you're wearing and where you came from and what where they met you, if it's on the subway or if it's behind the counter, if you're serving them coffee or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, okay. I love this. And this actually, <laughs> I was just listening to a true crime broadcast yesterday about the whole case, like the police couldn't crack it for forever. And this private investigation firm was hired and this uh, attractive woman who people didn't suspect at all came in and got this guy who wouldn't talk to anybody else admit to uh, doing these horrible, horrible crimes because she was completely underestimated. I love it. Yeah. I, I feel like you've got another career as a PI. <laughs> I, yes. Well, that's, I would, that's actually like what I would do if I wasn't an actor. I would definitely do something with like, either like in, I mean, I, I love a mystery. I love the mysteries of stories. I love like creating them and then fulfilling them. And yeah, I think I would have a great time, but I think that that's something that you can, the, the what was like revolutionary to me was the idea that I didn't have to try to engage with and meet men at their level by trying to behave like a man. I could do it by weaponizing being a woman, and that was that's a very different kind of thought process for me. And I think I, I think for a lot of women, I think there's a lot of like we societally view all of the things about women that make us different from men as bad as weak as as somehow less than and and the idea of like what if i sat in that and just and 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 if i valued those things and then used them because they're not they're different from men but they're not different from being human they're just as human so why wouldn't they be just as effective in a game of skill and chance I also want to call out too that when you did you went to the world series of poker mm. how old were you you were 17 Oh no 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 no! You have to be at least twenty one. I can't tell oh, you because you? my age oh, is right. a is a national secret. Oh right, but right, 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 I, right! I can tell you I was over the age of twenty one, and oh, it was great. legal okay. for me to be there. <laughs> oh right, right, <laughs> yeah, gambling, of course, yeah. of course, yeah, of course. Um, that's funny. But your dad wasn't a poker shark anyway. He was a he's a lawyer. Was he's a lawyer? lawyer. Yeah, he yeah. he was a lawyer. Uh, he retired a couple of years ago, but he's really good at poker. He went to the World Series for the first time in like two thousand and six, and he cashed. And it was one of his first big tournaments. And um, yeah, he, he didn't, I what stayed in. What does that in, mean? Oh, that means you, you make money. That means you okay. get so far in the tournament. It's like the top 10% of players make money. And, and he did. And he has continued to do that. And he's, he's really good. You know, he's, also, just like theater, you can spend all your time doing it and not make any money. Yes, exactly. And it oh, is very much like theater in that way. It's a, you're investing and gambling and you can play really well and lose and you can play really badly and win a Tony. It's, you know, anything. Play really badly and win a Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that's happened once or twice. Once or twice. Um, yeah. So tell me, tell me about then when you're growing up, you're playing poker, you're learning, uh, you're, you're getting this non-traditional social, social education, which is just brilliant. Hats off to your dad. Like, my God, this is, it's such a great thing. Yeah. So and when to my mom the, too, because she, she doesn't play, but she was very much like, you need to do this. This is going to be good for you. Like it was a joint awesome. effort. And then my dad was the one who actually taught me how to do it. <laughs> so when did you get into theater then? What was the artistic draw for you? It will, you know, that's, it's so funny that that has been through everything that has always been the through line. I saw the movie Annie when I was four. And it has not stopped since. Um, I I don't know what it was, but I know that I saw something in that. And I was like, oh, I need to do that. And I think I have since I can go back and kind of track through how it was always about, it was less about I need to be Annie and it was less about I need to 
be on stage, it was more stories really impacted me. Like, like the, I remember also like a little princess was another movie I saw and I was just like, Oh, I'm, I'm understanding something about myself and my six-year-old brain can't make sense of it. But I, I know something is happening to me. And, and I always wanted to then do that in return. And I couldn't have articulated it, but it's, it's been that as I've grown up and, you know, it started as acting because that's the most immediately available thing when you're a kid, especially if you grow up in New York, it's like, being on a soccer team or doing like little league, you can go to auditions for Broadway shows. It's just, it's right there. It's a two train ride away. And, but I, at the same time, I was always writing and I was always like putting on plays and putting myself in charge of my friends and my very patient sister and (laughs) her friends. Um, And so I was, I was always kind of dancing around wanting to being aware that I felt a lot and that stories helped me make sense of those feelings and wanting to then do that in return. And, and then it, it kind of shifted and ebbed and flowed from there. And I started auditioning when I was maybe nine and, um, and, and also did a combination of like working, but also doing the musicals at school and, you know, summer camp plays, you know, it wasn't just like, and then I was on Broadway and it was great as you know, it took decades um but and so we don't know so, how many decades though because we, we don't know how many decades about... it could be a decade it could be half a decade but in the it could mm. be actually several who's right, to say right, right. Who, who, who knows who knows um and so that's that's just always been kind of a constant i've never i don't remember a time where it wasn't about storytelling in some format or other and then it's translated to to you creating your own uh, a company, which has had mm-hmm. several productions off Broadway as well, right? Yes. So yeah. that's so that's Pocket Universe. Pocket Universe, which, which I love. I love that name too, by the way. Thank you. My sister came up with it, and it, it's it's a, a it's a piece of string theory, and it's the idea that there may be literally pocket universes within our universe that mirror the rules of the universe that we live in, but every pocket universe is slightly different. And mm-hmm. I thought like, oh, that's exactly what the company is doing because I'm taking the classic stories or classic storytelling conventions and they should be recognizable to people, but we're always going to do them with slightly different rules of the worlds that they exist. And so I, that's what we're, we're like making pocket universes. Um, so I yeah. got a computer science degree in college and you're using words that I never thought I would hear in the theater context, such as string theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all the same. I have a very holistic approach to, to all of this. I love it. I love it. If, if you can, uh, you should create a show that's all about um, physicists discovering a way to access the multiverse and then bring it all back together. Oh my God, I should. I mean, I think the overlap of, of science and art is so... Um, uh, ever present. I think we, I think we can ignore it, but I think that they are, when we use them in tandem, they're the most effective because science explains so much of the, the tangible pieces of being a human and art t- builds from there into the non-tangible parts of it. Cause there's so much that we can't explain, but there's like scientifically true things about, you know, that our, our bodies are going to die. Like, I think so much of it comes from the fact that we know that we're going to die. We're one of the only species that is aware of our mortality and we have no idea what to do with it. And so art is the thing that comments on that and, and in all of its different ways kind of helps us make sense of why you would get out of bed if you know how it ends, <laughs> you know, or whether you know that it ends. Right. How do you, how do you navigate that time in between? Oh my gosh. All right. So we're, we're going to go down some fun uh, metaphysical discussions. I... I talk about the science. I love science and I love all of this multiverse and am afraid of my own mortality and am always running to be the best that I can be because I'm afraid that death is going to catch me. Like this is, this is why I go to therapy and (laughs) um, part of part of, well, not why, but there's many reasons why, but that's one of many. Um, I think that there are, there is a way for science to measure why we like art, but Mm In the same way that I think, and let me know if you agree with me, that as we have become more evolved as a, as a species, 
and become more self-aware and and we have developed this ability in our minds to be able to rationalize our own consciousness right um we've lost the ability to trust our gut and to go with instinct like animals can do so mm-hmm. we've lost the ability to like when you walk into a room and you click with someone what is that there's pheromones behind it there's brain chemicals being released but we but we can say, oh, it's, I, I don't understand. We, like we lived a past life together. Some people believe in past lives. Some people rationalize it in, in any number of different ways. But I think there's actual science behind what is happening. And this goes back to, if we were to get the basic, 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 we have an an, animals who can smell fear. Animals, dogs know when seizures are coming on. You can train them to smell like they they perceive things in a way that we don't because I think we've evolved past the ability to be so instinctual that we have to overprocess everything. Mm-hmm. Am I still making sense? Absolutely. I totally okay. agree. Yeah. Okay. So then when it comes to art, why do people love theater? Why do people love feeling emotion? Why do people love this stuff? And there there is a reason that I think if you had the smartest scientists focused on figuring this out would actually sort of ruin the experience because then you wouldn't be experiencing this emotion in its raw form through that. Because when we start overthinking things, we sort of lose the fun in it. And that's where art and theater brings us back to. It's that raw form of just being able to cry and laugh and go on emotional journeys with strangers. I would say I agree with everything that you said up until it would ruin it because we would overthink it because I think the scientific explanation is is actually I th- I'm again I'm not a scientist but I do think it's actually very simple and I think it is that there was a study that was done about P- in, I think it was I think it was in London and it was about the synchronized breathing of an audience and that when they were watching the play, they were all, their heart rates all started to match each other because they were breathing Ooh. together because the, and I think that that's the pacing of the story mirror. Like it was, a, it's a figure eight of what's happening on stage affects the breathing of the audience, affects the breathing of the actors. And, and then you're all breathing together. And that feels very simple and very human that we, we are social creatures and we, we live and die together and we, we need each other for survival reasons. Like no one can actually survive alone. We just, we generally don't. And the idea that you come into a space and your breath synchronizes with a group of people and you go through an emotional experience together that that is satisfying and that that is cathartic and healing and inspiring that we love that, that we also love that I think is very, is simple. I don't, I think there's the scientific explanation is that it connects us to each other on a physical physiological level. And that makes us feel safe because we feel engaged in a community and then we go on and live our lives. So I and I so I think that that for me when I read that article I was like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense and makes me love it even more and it's why the last two years I think were really hard because we you don't I can't even say this I was get, because at the beginning of the pandemic I was I, I felt very strongly that we don't need theater to survive we it is it is wonderful and it is powerful and it is also not safe and we should if we need to take if we need to be apart from each other right now that that's safer and we should that's how we survive two years later though i think we are it's very clear that we're on the precipice of an unprecedented mental health crisis and the people are dying because they didn't have community isolation did kill people and is killing people and Mm. theater is one of the the facets it's an empathy accelerator it connects you i mean there are shows that are 80 minutes long you go into this room you breathe with other people you connect to everybody and then you leave what is a therapy session is 50 minutes. This is another 30 to 40 minutes. I mean, there are also plays there an hour, you know, whatever it is, you're getting, 
this quick shot of connection and empathy and community. And that reminds the primal parts of you that you can survive because you have people. And I did theater is essential theater. We, we were not, we didn't survive without it. And so that piece of the science of it feels very straightforward to me and, and, and wonderful. And like, it makes me love it and respect it and value it and honor it even more as an audience member too. I really missed it as an audience member. I felt like I need to, like the second I could go to the theater, I was in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's something very uh, cathartic about walking into that theater and knowing, you can, you know, you feel the essence of what's been there and the emotion that's that's been contained within that space. I absolutely, yes. I absolutely agree with you. And <clears throat> I've, said, and I've said this, go ahead. I was just going to say that's also science. That's physics. That's energy can't be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed. And so these spaces contain the energy that they always had. And we are coming in and transforming and engaging with it. But it, it's always been there. And so you, when you feel connected to history, when you're in those spaces, it's because you are on a, on a physiological level. The energy has always been there. And you're participating in it and you're changing it and then you're taking it out with you. <laughs> I, I've, I've got that meme in my head from Step Brothers. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I, I, God, one of the things I've said over and over again as I was, uh, as I was doing these interviews throughout the pandemic, was I cannot wait to get back into the the theater space in order to go on a journey with a room full of strangers. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I missed so much. Yeah. about about theater as an audience member is just being able to 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 gasp at the same time and to cry mm-hmm. at the same time and to go on this journey like it feels so good to be you feel belong it, it, it's belonging mm-hmm. because yeah. as you were saying going back to instinct taking it full circle right we've evolved from herd animals it's safety in numbers yeah and and we feel great when we are with other people mm-hmm. period period because it's safe. Yeah. Our lizard brain, the instinct of our lizard brain says, be with other people because that makes you live longer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so theater is, is soothing that part of your brain because you're with other people. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. On to less, well, less comical topics. How I Learned to Drive. Um, <laughs> there's a little humor in it. There is. People are having a good some, time. There is some humor. Uh, yeah. So, so you're making. We're calling this your Broadway debut, but yeah. technically, right? You had what uh, about a decade ago? You had yes. one performance on Broadway in Arcadia as an understudy. Yes, with 20 minutes notice, it was great. It was magical. <laughs> but yes, this is my official. <laughs> this is official. Cool. And then even this gorsh. Yeah, you were so gorsh. I got a little goofy going on there. Gorsh. Um, so yeah, gosh, we you were supposed to have your to go on with this show two years ago, and mm-hmm. then pandemic, which is like, no, no, nope. we're gonna we're gonna take another break again. Which, so yeah. tell ahead. me which way go ahead oh no I was just gonna say that I think I it's I think this play is on its own journey and I don't think it I you know I don't think that it caused the pandemic but I do think that it is it's we need it right now we need it now in a way that we needed it two years ago but the second this happened I was like oh this play is the play that we should come back with and it's going to mean something even more to people now two years later but deals with some pretty heavy topics. Yeah. A- and uh, I think just like there, there are other topics that when, when something bad happens to you, or there's confirmation bias, right? In Just in life, right? You buy a Honda Accord and then you see every other Honda Accord on the road. Mm-hmm. A- and so, like, let's just talk about it, right? So this play talks about sexual abuse and emotional mm-hmm. abuse and um, inappropriate relationships with family members and whatnot. And it's it's a somewhat heavy show and there is some comedy to it um but i think there are things that that when you start uh going back to again what we were saying when you're able to see something like this on stage that touches on things that may have happened to you or happened to friends of yours that you don't know how to process that you don't know how to talk about it allows you to uh have a little bit of therapy in 
watching how the character has dealt with it or watching how the the story plays out and gives you a little bit of of uh, yeah comfort i guess in in being able to see the stuff so i think it's very important to not have like to your point it's sort of we need we need the heavier stuff to have perception of the lighter stuff but it's also very cathartic to some people who may not know they need it or may not realize that something like this has happened to them and they need to to deal with the trauma or deal with whatever comes out of that for them. And, you know, th- there there's a place for Disney and there's a place for the, sh- the showy, glitzy shows. And there's a place for these as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess speak to that for for you because you're one of the Greek chorus, as, mm-hmm. as it's called in the cast, which so you and, and a couple other people play multiple characters as Mary Louise Parker and David Morse's character are um, going through and telling the the principal story. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a play that is for everybody. I don't think that your trauma has to be specific to sexual abuse or um or family dynamics, because I think what it's one of those pieces that is so specific. It is universal in that I think we all have experiences of, of being manipulated and having to figure out what we believe is true and ideologies, either familial or governmental or religious that are, that are overwhelming to us when we're in them. We don't know that something is off until we get any distance. And then we can look back and be like, Oh, I was, I was doing things that I didn't understand. And now I'm, I have some space and I understand them. And I think, I really think there's a, there's a piece of the pandemic that is, that gives us all a relationship to this story because we've all just been through a multi-year trauma Mm -hmm. where we were at the mercy of people in charge who were sometimes right and sometimes wrong, but we had, we lost our agency. We lost our, our autonomy. We had to make decisions with incomplete information that wasn't always in our best interest. There were a lot of factors at play, the economics versus saving lives. And what do we save the economy? Do we save people? Like that's all, how do we make decisions within that? How do we take care? How do we, I, I mean, uh, theater is a great example. We were told it was inessential. And so we all bought into it because we we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And now we're watching people die left and right from the isolation and lack of community. And so did we do the right thing? Should we have all gotten up and just said, no, we're making theater. People need it. And we are going to gather and whoever, like, I, and I don't know, I don't know. But my point is that we all bought into it and we all followed the rules. And I think that when now I watch this play and I think, well, we, we actually all can relate to trying to figure out who you are and and how to survive when you are not in complete control of your survival because you're being empowered and protected by someone who is also hurting you. And I think that that's why I feel like this play is from the moment that we we got delayed I was like we're going to need this in 2 years. In in well I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be 4 days. 2 months. No, yeah. no, I thought it was going to be 2 months and then you know as but as the time went on and on I thought oh this is this is going to really mean something to everybody. And then, yes, specifically, I think what is masterful about what Paula has written is that it is, it is not Paula Vogel. I mean, you just, you read it once and you're like, well, that's, that's a Pulitzer prize winning play. Yeah, for sure. It Mm -hmm. should be the Bible. I don't even, I mean, it's, there is so much human truth and poetry in every single line of the play and what she has done that I think is really unique is that it is a play that is about a character healing, but it is not in service of the actor playing it or the playwright healing. It's in service of they've already done it. And the play is putting a hand out to the people who need to be pulled up through hell back to earth. And there, it thinks the whole, the play is written as, I mean, it's written as a lesson. She's the very first line is sometimes to tell a secret, you first have to teach a lesson. And so throughout the whole play, and that's part of what the, how the Greek chorus functions, which I also think is such a brilliant way to do this. 
we, we, we function as a traditional Greek chorus. We are a collective. We're all part of Lil' Bit, who Mary Louise Parker plays. And so we're, we're pushing the story around as she is embodying each moment that she's conveying to the audience. And then we step out and play characters as well. And so Paula Vogel has really engaged with this very classical structure, which is automatically epic. I mean, it's, it, it's, so we know as, as humans just instinctively how to process this kind of, of story. And we know that we're going somewhere huge. And, and then we have these, yeah. And then we play other characters throughout it. And I think what's beautiful about my track is that I play the oldest woman in the story and then the youngest woman in the story. And because part of what she's also explored is kind of the generational trauma that's passed through women. I think we talk a lot about the cycle of violence with fathers and sons. We have very few mother-daughter plays, very few mother-daughter musicals. It's part of why Mamma Mia is one of my favorite musicals of all time. And, (laughs) and, and then we have this play, which, which shows you these, these three generations of women. And, And it's whatever your life has been like, I think this play speaks to how strong family ideology is and how hard it is to break out of it and figure out who you are, but also to recognize the nuance and complexity of how everyone is trying to survive and how that impacts everyone else in a story, which to bring it full circle is kind of like poker where everyone is trying to win and you're all playing the same game and you all have the same objective. And it's, what little bit does and what I learned from poker is there's nothing wrong with you taking care of yourself. You go, yep, I see what you're all trying to do. I know you all want to win. I don't have to sacrifice myself at that altar and I can decide I want to play to win too. And, and I hope that, I hope that that's what this play ultimately gives people is the freedom and permission to take whatever happened, whatever is in your car, whatever is in your trunk, all that baggage just drive forward. Just keep going. And with David and Mary Louise, you know these performances are... I mean, I don't even need to see it to know, know that's going to be phenomenal. It's because, unbelievable. And yeah, Johanna and, Day. I mean, the three... I mean, I mean, Chris Myers, who is the other new young person, is also incredible. The three of them, I, I watch... I watch in awe every night. We've, I, I can't stop. I don't, I don't need to stand in the wings between moments, and I can't move because it's different every night it's true it's the same story it's the same journey and they are just every scene it's like a tennis match where the ball goes up in the air and i don't know who's going to get which shot in every night and i don't even actually know who's going to win i know what the words of the end of the scene are going to be but it's they are just so present and they know what they're doing they know these characters and they know this story and it's really special to show up in a space where everybody has the same investment in telling the story. It's nobody, there's very little ego in that theater. It's very much, everyone feels, I think, really protective of the story and of the play and of what it, the importance of conveying that story to 600 people every night. And that's very powerful to be around and to be a part of. I don't know what about what you just said started to make me tear up. But I am starting to tear up. And I and, and part of it is that I think when you said it's when you said you don't know who's gonna win every night, but even though the lines are the same, you don't know mm-hmm. who's gonna win. And I think it's the respect and the commitment and the emotional availability that the entire cast has to have to yeah. to keep at, at such a high level. And I mm-hmm. said this so many times that Broadway performers are the Olympians of theater. You have mm-hmm. to be the best to be on Broadway. And to be able to get to, to this place where you tr- implicitly trust your entire cast to a point where you're recreating a f- brand new show this it, at this raw of a level eight times a week mm-hmm. is, I don't know why it made me tear up. It, respectable, envious. I wish I could have experienced that one time in my life. I don't know what it. I don't know what the hell that is. But, but damn, I can't wait to see the show again. <laughs> it's, I, have you have you seen this production yet? Have you come yet? I'm going to see it next week. Oh, great. Okay, good. Oh, I, I'm curious to see how, what you think of it. I think. I, I mean, what I find that I I relate to that feeling of when. 
when actors and when a, when a creative team brings themselves so fully to a story that has been created so intentionally and carefully, I think there's something very spiritual about the experience of of what we do in terms of when you're doing it at the highest level, which I, I would also say, I think, I think that happens not on Broadway too. I think there are like, I've seen performances in, you know, cause I run pocket universe, which is this tiny company. And we're like on the top floor of a, of a warehouse in the middle <laughs> of Soho. And, and I think, I think there is, I see that, I've worked with actors in those spaces where, and I've seen performances where it's like the, that same level of, there's also almost something harder about it when you don't have the stamp of Broadway on it. And you have to believe that it is just as important for the three people who showed up that night. And they, they came, they climbed those stairs and you need to do Julius Caesar for them and just, and believe that it is important. I think there, that is, that to me feels Olympian, also, but all that to say, whenever that happens, I think there's something about it that is really generous going from both directions. There's a, it's a group effort of an audience being open and wanting to, to have this part of their hearts poked at and, and us absorbing that and taking it seriously and channeling. And that's why, that's why there are doctors who do heart surgery and then there are actors who work on your heart and we have to take it as seriously and like I I've been working really hard to find like how where is that corner of my heart that lets me do that last scene that I don't want to give away but I I have to do something very quickly in my imagination and it's it is I feel a great responsibility because I'm taking a piece of little bit and I'm playing her and I have to do it maintaining what has been built but also it's like we split focus in this really interesting way and that responsibility feels massive. But I feel like that's, that to me feels like doing an emergency heart surgery. It's like, you just have to be ready and you have to, some people's, people's hearts are in your hands in that moment. Mm. And it, it, there, I don't know. It's, it, it is emotional. It's emotional to think about. It's emotional to, to allow yourself to, to recognize our vulnerability. I think that's what it is. There is something that, that in feeling the power of theater and what it means and how important it is, you just have to be open to your own vulnerability. And, and that's what theater does to us. It gives you space to be like, yeah, we got you. We have, you don't have to tell anyone that you cried in this space, but we're here <laughs> and we're holding it for you because that's what we're trained to do. That's, that was our med school. And we and we got you. That's very similar to uh, to something Patty Lapone. I I just had an interview recently with Patty Lapone, and she you know she's been known very much to be like yelling at the audience for doing <laughs> things that she doesn't like. Yeah. And I got into that with her, and I said, you know, like what is it about it? She's because she got into theater because of the audience, and mm-hmm. so she gets upset because the audience doesn't respect each other for what mm-hmm. you know when they're talking when they're on their phones whatever the case is and so i i thought of that because what you just said about when in this final scene you're you've got the audience's heart in your hands you've got the awareness of the uh, on stage that you are still doing this for a group of people who are there to feel to love to cry to laugh mm-hmm. you're doing this for them you're not doing this for you mm-hmm. and that is that is very, very. I, I respect that so much, and it's it, it's such a different thing that I think is going to set you apart in your career over time because you realize why you're performing. You realize why mm-hmm. you're doing this. It's not it's not going up there for you. It's going up mm-hmm. there because the art form is for the masses. It's for the yeah. part of our lizard brain that needs to be in a group of herd animals to survive. Yeah, that was something that I really learned during our Dear Dead Drug Lord because I had an even, I mean, this scene is harrowing in its in a in its own way. And in our Dear Dead Drug Lord, I had I was given a coat hanger abortion on stage in full view of the audience, and and against my will. So I was like attacked by this group of girls, and 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 this happens, and was it was really difficult at the beginning because i could feel the this i could feel the i mean i was in charge of of 
creating the moment when I realize what's about to happen, which is when the audience realizes it's about to happen. And that energy was really overwhelming during the first couple of previews because I was wholly unprepared for what it was going to feel like to feel like I'm about to do something to this group of people. And so you, you can't disappear into yourself. You have to hold them with you. You have, you can't just like go through something like that on stage at a hundred. You have to be holding, you have to make them feel safe and know mm-hmm. that you're safe and that it's, and, and like hold those two things at once. And I, I learned a lot about navigating that middle ground and how to, because I, it's, it's actually not fulfilling to just attack an audience. And that wasn't the intention of the moment. The, the intention of the moment was to wake them up to something else that was about to happen. And, and so I, it was a great, it, it really helped me do this because I can, it's the same thing happens in this scene. I'm like, I feel the gasp. I know what's, I can feel the audience feeling what's about to happen. And it, this, that was like the hardest version of how do you, hold them and and usher them through this experience as it happens to you. And this one happens much faster. So I'm glad I had that experience of like doing it in this really massive visual way. And now I'm doing it a little bit more like in my imagination. Um, but yeah, but yes, it's, it's, it's a, it's a responsibility. Like you can, you just feel that energy coming at you. And part of why I love this is that I feel like I know how to absorb that and take it in and then give it back to you in a way that's safe. Cause that's what I, and that's what I want to do. I want to, in whatever capacity I'm in a production or just in the world, I want to take what I know and use it to usher people through their own experiences. That's beautiful. I, I have so much respect for you and so much respect for that. That's It's a level of self-awareness that I think a lot of people just don't have, period, full stop. You know, it, it, And it probably goes back and bring it full circle again to the, the poker aspect, right? Like just <laughs> knowing knowing the, the, the micro... Uh, what, not, what's, what's the word that, you know, when people like Twitch or whatever, the micro, fate, micro uh, expressions? Yeah. 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 There's something in there. Yeah, micro expressions or or just you know their intent by uh, by a breath or by a look or mm-hmm. or God, I, I the ability to read people is mm-hmm. is a lost art form because everyone just looks at their phones. But anyway, that's a separate yeah. conversation. Separate conversation, but it is true. I mean, that's I I live for that. I love. I mean, I think I I think I I whatever the human need for connection is. I think I am full of it. <laughs> I really like <laughs> reading people in that. But, and, and also it's why I would be a good detective because I like figuring people out. Did we become best myself. friends again? Yup. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap up here with three questions I ask everybody to end okay. the episodes. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? What motivates me is that I have been the recipient of incredible empathy and incredible love and support in the darkest moments of my life. And I feel a desire and responsibility and ability as a result of that to put my hand out to the next people and to pull them through with what I know. And Maggie Rogers, one of my favorite musicians, said this beautiful thing that her job is to go see the world and report back. And I think I see the world and experience the world in a way that feels things for people who don't have time, who like have to go like do the actual work of running the world. I think I can feel things and I, I'm motivated to help people live more empathetic lives because I love living full of my feelings. And I want people to feel safe doing that too. That's a beautiful answer. Okay. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? I would say to my younger self and to, uh, I think, all, all the younger people, listen to the things that light your heart on fire. Don't push them away. Listen to them. And, and even if you can't harness them in the moment, those are the things that will free you and, and push you to the work that matters to you. The, the things that I spent a lot of, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by being told what to do in this business and being told what to do in the world. And 
it it can it can dampen that fire and it can make you question that fire and can make you think like the things that are important to me are just for me they're not important to everybody else that's what it is that's what it is i want to reframe my answer the the <laughs> thing that you feel that you think is the most unique to you and no one else feels it everyone else feels it so share it that yes. would be my advice to my younger self you're not I alone you're everyone that. i love that okay Last show, our last question. This is the hardest one. If you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? How I Learned to Drive. <laughs> I mean, right now, that's what I'm doing. I watch it every night in the wings and I just love it. And I would say that or also Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia. <laughs> it's one of our only mother-daughter stories. I saw it with my mom when I was 11. It makes me cry every time I see it. I think... I think there. I think it has become cartoonified in the telephone game of past lives. But I, I went back and I rewatched. It's on YouTube, but the Philida Lloyd original production is actually genius. She she handled it with such nuance and energy and and truth. It's beautiful, and I think I wish we could go back to the original intention of it and like. Uh, I mean, we don't. And and it's not a mystery. It's a mother-daughter story, so we don't care about it, and we treat it like a joke. It's not. It's a beautiful story about this generational uh, desire to separate from your parent, but then realizing that they're the parts of you that you love the most. And I think it's beautiful, and I could watch it every day for the rest of my life. Okay. Where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Hey Lissa May. It's hey, a lot of Taylor Swift guitar covers because I can do whatever I want. It's my Instagram. Uh, <laughs> but I am trying to like post lots of backstage stuff and how I learned to drive too. I love that. Uh, you can get more of me at the theaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. I just started posting on TikTok at the theater podcast. I don't do know it. what I'm I don't know what I'm doing there, but Whatever, I'm ticky talking now, so I'm great. Leave a rating and a review. This has been edited by Well Rounded Hoodlum Productions. Jukebox the Ghost gave us our music, and Alyssa May Gold gave us this amazing conversation. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. How great to do a podcast and have a new best friend. <laughs> yup. Yup. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.